Hello and welcome to the Next Level Podcast Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller, here with my best New York City-dwelling buddy, JVL, for a little local news update. How you doing? What's happening in the city? Did you get to go through Central Park today? Uh, How's the weather? It's great. It's such a, you know, so I took the train uptown earlier today up to check out our venue on the Upper West Side. For the May 18th. I got a schmear. I got a schmear while I was up there. It's great. Life in New York City is a cavalcade of wonderment. How does the event look? May 18th. It's coming up now, just about a week and a half. We get to hang out in person. It's looking great. I was talking with Molly Jong Fast today, our buddy. We've sold a lot of tickets, which is great. There are a few left. It would be nice to sell out all of the tickets, but it is a very big space. And uh, I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to it as well. Well, our guest today on the Sunday show is Larry Wilmore. I handled it solo because of some, you know, moving parts that we had behind the scenes. But Larry was fantastic. Really interesting guy. We reflected on his time speaking at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. His podcast is called Black on the Air, uh, which is by The Ringer, and it's a great podcast. So we talked a lot about race issues, and uh, he's thoughtful and, you know, kind of very considered, discussed policing and that. And in the interim, since that interview, we've obviously had this big story in your your home city, New York, with Jordan Neely. Uh, for folks who missed it, Jordan Neely is a homeless man who is known for his Michael Jackson impersonations in the subway, but he had mental health issues. Occasionally, you know, he'd have breakdowns in the subway. He was arrested a couple of times. You know, police took him to the hospital on multiple occasions. So it's a troubled individual who was really talented. Michael Jackson impersonator was on the subway. We don't exactly know the details of what he was doing, but a, you know, vigilante 24-year-old, I believe, Marine or ex-Marine went and choked him out on the subway and killed him. And the response to this has been, you know, overwhelming. That the cross current that it reaches on a lot of these issues, you know, be it crime, be it our mental health, be it the fear mongering about what's happening in the cities among Republicans. So since you're a local JVL, I just kind of wanted to put a quarter in and, and see what your reaction to it all has been. This is a long running multi-generational thing in New York City. And I instantly thought of the Bernie Getz shootings. For the children in the audience, in 1984, as New York was hitting its nadir, the 70s were very bad to New York, and even the early 80s were pretty bad too. And tons of crime and peep shows and homelessness and, you know, it was like Thunderdome. Uh, so Bernard Getz is this nebbishy right-wing guy who is on the subway carrying a gun and seems to be, he's watched too many Charlie Bronson movies. And there are four black teenagers that he claims are menacing him and he shoots them. And this became like the most important issue in America for months. And it was a very clear red-blue political divide, even though we didn't talk that way about, you know, whether Bernie Getz was a hero or like a weirdo vigilante with a gun fetish who saw himself as the main character in a movie. And that has never gone away in New York City. It's just always part of the furniture. Yeah, the response on this, this sort of hero villain thing, and we were at a little bit of a Kyle Rittenhouse moment uh, with this as well. We don't know. It is a Marine veteran. I just double checked. We don't know the name yet of the person that we know choked out, uh, Jordan Neely. Some of the responses I just wanted to flag here. J.D. Vance on Twitter 
said that Jordan was threatening innocent people on the train and been, been arrested multiple times. I find the story response to the story completely disgusting. Let's all gang up on the guy whose protective instinct kicked in. Just his protective instinct. Just a protective instinct. When Hannity was discussing this uh, and discussing the guy that choked him out on his live set, I don't know, do you know that Hannity's doing a live set right now? It's not helping his ratings. He, you know, has a little studio audience, like Yikes. it's the 90s. And a cheer, you know, when he mentioned the guy that choked out Jordan Neely, there was an audible cheer, you know, in his audience. So that is the instinct about all this that's so gross. A serious law and order party might give a response to this. It's like, hey, the fact that this guy's had so many problems and yet is still on the street is a sign that we're not doing a good enough job with mental health funding, that maybe we need more security in, in our subway system, etc. Like, that's different than glorifying some dude who just decides he's got to put another person into a chokehold on the subway when, at least to the details we have now, there is no actual imminent harm. What bothers me on this is the weird, not weird, because it's perfectly human, the bloodthirstiness of it. You know, even if we were to, let's just hypothetically grant that this was totally justified. Let's pretend that Jordan Neely was threatening people. Let's pretend that the fellow who who grabbed him and killed him was protecting people. That's not a celebratory thing. That's a, you know, this guy had to do something which is terrible and which he'll carry around with himself for the rest of his life. And do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. these are like a bunch of regrettable circumstances. Even if you're on the side of the Marine, you, you know, even if all the facts come to show that he did absolutely nothing wrong and he was really helping the situation, yeah. it still is a terrible situation that this guy had to go through. That's the weird lionization of it. I just find it hard to see it is rooted in anything other than than racism. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, it's no. racism and it's tied to this Tucker text. It's like we've become to hate each other so much that, you know, at least in that text that was leaked where he was like, oh, white people don't fight like this. But then, then he goes on to kind of talk about how, you know, I have this instinct that I wanted to see that Antifa fucker killed. It's not a direct quote, but something like that. But yeah. I have to know that that's not right, that that's not our better angels, right? So, like, it just shows how pervasive that is, you know, in people's private thoughts in public. Like, they would go so far as to think that this person who has problems on the subway, you know, you dehumanize them, right? It's dehumanizing, right? It's like, oh, they're an enemy that needed to be choked out, you know, rather than, you know, a fellow human that needed help. That doesn't count, right? Like that right. that guy's life doesn't count. That's the punchline or a prop for us to posture against and a way for us to signal which tribe we're on. And, you know, it's not a real death. And I just, man, woof. It's a brutal one. We get into some heavy stuff with Larry Wilmore, too, but also some light stuff. He tells some great stories about the Bernie Mac show, etc. If you don't know his career, he's like the Forrest Gump of black entertainment and and even mainstream. <laughs> he's, he was in The Office, but he also touched in Living Color and Bernie Mac and like any cultural touchstone like Larry Wilmore was there. Uh, it's a great interview. His podcast, Black on the Air, is also wonderful. I was a guest on it last year if you want to go through the archives. Um, one more plug for our interview with Colin Allred on this Sunday show about about a month ago. Mm. Scroll back and check it out if you missed it. Uh, he is now in the Senate race against Ted Cruz. We are ahead of the game on that. We've got some good guests coming your way in the next month. Thank you. Like us, rate us, review, send it to your friends. Up next, Larry Wilmore. But first, our friends at Acid Tongue. Peace.
Hey, Larry, welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level podcast. Really appreciate it, man. Sure, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. I have to confess. Uh Uh-oh. I have an ulterior motive for inviting you. Oh, no. Well, you know, I had a good time on your podcast. I love Black on the Air. It was a lot of fun. It's great. That was one reason. But the real reason is, uh, you know, my Denver Nuggets are in the playoffs here. And my lifelong goal is to get invited onto the Bill Simmons or the NBA show at the Ringer to talk about the Nuggets in the finals. Oh, wow. Any Ringer person out there... I've been inviting on our podcast just in the hope to come at everybody from a different angle. I want to talk yeah. about the nuggets. You know, you guys are what I consume. Like when I don't want to do politics stuff, I'm right. all ringer NBA stuff. So, and my nuggets, this could be our year. I don't know why you want to talk to that Celtic lover, Bill Simmons, though. That doesn't make sense to me. If it's nugget Celtics. You should absolutely go in and trash him as much as possible. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. Anyway, thank you for doing this. The timing is perfect. Of course. Because we're taping this on Correspondence Day weekend here in D.C., yeah. but this will run next week. So last weekend was the Correspondence Dinner. You gave the last... Uh-huh keynote before the correspondence center completely collapsed into you know insanity in the Trump <laughs> years where it's like we like everything's too serious now we can't joke about shit like our democracy's collapsing like this is not cool anymore to do this so you gave the last one when it was still right. cool to kind of you know make jokes at ourselves and take the yeah have you thought about that you realize that you're the end of an era well i think Hassan gave one. Hassan was last year. Hassan was in 22 or 21 or 22. Yeah. So so it has slowly started again. But I'm telling no, you. No, no, no. He was a couple of years ago. I think he did it during Trump and Trump didn't show up. Right. Is that right? Was he the one during Trump? Yeah. I have to tell you, last year I went to the parties. I'm not doing it this year. I'm skipping. I did break it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable now. I mean, even in the Biden years, it's like... Is it kind of sad? You know, back in the old days, one of those things, you're up there, you're like, you're making fun of Chris Christie, you're making oh, fun of Hillary. You're everybody. Making fun of everybody. It's equal opportunity. Absolutely. Then you go to the parties after, and it's like, oh, there's some Republicans, you know, there's some yeah. Democrats, you can josh each other. Exactly. But like... These days, it's like, you know, who wants to make small talk with Kellyanne Conway? I mean, like, nobody wants to make small talk with, you know, fascists, right? So so the vibe is a little different. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I got more pushback from the left than I did from the right in terms of my performance. Like, a lot of people, especially establishment people, did not like the fact that I called the president my You know, like, they were not happy with that. That came from the left. And a lot of my jokes were directed at the left. Like... It was maybe 70% at the left, 30% at the right, you know. You went hard at Wolf Blitzer. The room, the room <laughs> I rewatched it last night. You went hard at Wolf, and the room was not digging it. They hated me for that. It's, they weren't just not digging it, Tim. They hated me for that. And what happened with that joke was my tone was a little bit up. I mean, here's the thing, Tim. You're, you're standing next to the freaking president of the United States, and I had to have the funniest president ever, too. You know, it's like yeah. funny presidents. Like Obama, JFK, Reagan, like probably in that order, right? In yeah. terms of just funny. Yeah, sure. If you have to follow any of those people in terms of humor, good luck. You know, but Obama, number yeah. one. And he had some great joke writers and he drops the mic. I'm like, what the fuck, Obama in my mind, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so tough to follow. They weren't trying to see another brother come up, you know, and make jokes at their expense. And show them up. Exactly. Because yeah. he made jokes at their expense and they were like, oh, ho, ho, Mr. President, you know. So they were not happy with that. Was that your toughest room, you think? It's a tough room, yeah. It really is a tough room. But I decided, Larry, in your mind, pretend like you're killing. 
That's what I told myself. <laughs> and if you look at me, you see me kind of laughing like they're enjoying it. You know? <laughs> I know. I would have watched it. It's kind of funny. I thought you made you were puffing yourself up by laughing. Was that psychological or were you just kind of like, screw it? It was psychological for me not to just completely implode, you know, for me just not to be sad as I was doing it. You know? My critique of it now with the distance is you ignored Trump. And I was kind of wondering why. Like, you went hard at Christie, you ignored Trump. So we're in the middle of the 2016 election. Yeah. Sebastian has this updated. Hassan did do the next year after you with Trump. Trump right. didn't come. Yeah. And then they didn't have it for a few years. But so you're up there, and it's the middle of the 2016 election. Yeah. So did you think the Trump jokes were just too easy, too pat? I mean, you go at Chris Christie hard. You go at, like, the people sucking up to Trump yeah. pretty hard. But you ignored Trump. Yeah, because you're right. I thought the Trump jokes were too easy. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because they had already gone after Trump before, you know— Seth Meyers famously did it. At that time, right. everybody was joking about Trump. And I'm like, this is just an echo chamber. I can't go in and make Trump jokes, you know. So yeah. I did it right at the beginning. And it was an accurate prediction, you know, where at the beginning, the first joke was that next year, you know, I forgot what the joke was, but it was basically predicting Trump was going to be president, you know, was my joke. Yeah, that's right. I forgot what it was, too. But it was... And it turned out to be true. So Right, but everybody laughed because they're like, it was so ridiculous. I mean, this is like the mindset. Come on. Uh... Oh, that's not going to happen. That's so ridiculous. But it was true. Yeah. So as we do on the show, just a little politics stuff at the top. You on your podcast, you do a ton of politics. Like, I mean, you had me on. I'm, you know, I'm a very minor political celebrity. You know, you had Katie Porter on last week. I want to talk about that a couple weeks ago. What was the inspiration for that for you to kind of move from right. doing comedy mm -hmm. and to have this podcast and to like focus it so much on politics? Like, what was the primer for it? Well, it's a combo platter. There's politics. There's entertainment. Yeah, sure. Sometimes we talk about writing human uh, interests, you know, whatever. I had David Copperfield on. If the pod really covers the things that I'm interested in as opposed to politics or that type of thing. Sure. And many times, I haven't done it in a while, ironically, but I always had a weigh-in in the beginning where I would try to be topical and cover what's going on and give kind of my almost like a nightly show type of thing a little bit in some ways in my mind. But I haven't done it a lot lately. And the, one of the reasons why is because it's so toxic out there, Tim. And I want to get away from that a little bit. And so I'm focusing more on just having good conversation interviews. I consider when I have someone on my show, I don't approach it as an interview. I approach it as a conversation and as if I'm chatting with a friend or that type of thing. So they're never intended to be hostile. They're never gotcha. I'm not trying to expose somebody. It, it doesn't have that tenor that you see out everywhere else. When people listen to my show, they know it's like they're invited to my house and we're sitting down, we're having drinks. And whoever comes in there, as you know, when you're in there, we're having a fun conversation. And what I want, my goal is for the audience to get, for me and the audience, who is this person in front of me? Let's learn a little bit about them. Let's see a side of them maybe we don't see. But it's not intended to have a divisive conversation or take sides on something. If we disagree about something, it's an agreeable disagreement, not a disagreeable disagreement. Like I've had Ben Shapiro on the show. I've had different people from the right on the show. Wait a minute. You had Ben and Shapiro on? I did. I went back to listen to some of them. I didn't make it to that one. I had one like four years ago. We did each other's pod, you know? Yeah. Uh, this was like 2018, maybe. So yeah. it was a while ago. Did you ask him about his Candace Owens hiring? It was an interesting personnel choice for me, you know? <laughs> it was pre all that. It was pre uh, Candace Owens and it was pre that. Would you have those guys on now? Like, do you feel like you can even have those conversations now in the same way? <laughs> it's tough. It's tough, Tim, because things get more divisive, you know, and 
the sides that people stake out. There was one point I probably would have had Candace on, but it was about four or five years ago. Because I, I don't know why, but I kind of catch people at the beginnings of things, you know, <laughs> when they're doing stuff. And when Candace first broke, I thought, oh, who is this brash voice that isn't afraid to troll the left? Yeah. Like, that's how I saw her in my mind. And one of the reasons why I have been on is because the left doesn't get trolled a lot by fearlessness, you know. And I'm saying this as a person on the left, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, because I like a good fight, not an unfair fight. And mm. to me, I always feel like, as somebody who's considered on the left, I'm not on the extreme. I consider myself a centrist, basically. But I realize where people put me, so that's fine. But, <laughs> you know, the left side of the scale really does control a lot of the culture, you know. Sure. And who gets to say so in the culture and the right, for whatever reason, doesn't, you know, and I think a lot of their frustration comes from that. And it used to be the other way around, you know. So to me, I've always enjoyed when people stand up to the left, whether I agree with them or not, is not the important thing. To me, it's fun to see people who control the left as much as the left trolls the right, because the yeah. left trolls the right. Hard, you know, deserved. But they do it with impunity. But yeah. when the right trolls the left, it's not always with impunity, you know. Yeah, that takes me into the Katie Porter thing. I wanted to talk to you about that. Well, just firstly, like, what's your big picture take on, on like, her and that Senate race, like, talking yeah. to her? What was your takeaway from that combo? And then I want to pick a few. I want to poke the left a little bit. Yeah, and I'll poke left and right. It doesn't matter. Okay, me, just so it. you know where I'm coming from. Yeah. Katie Porter, that's interesting. I was trying to figure out as I'm talking to her, does she think she can actually win this Senate seat? You know, she was a very nice person. I had her on my show, Wilmore, that was on Peacock when I had it. Yeah. And I remember in the beginning that we had some technical issues and she was really in a bad mood. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I wonder if she's going to be pissy during this interview. It was going through my mind too, if I'm yeah. going to see some of that. Like, who really is this woman? You know, but yeah. she was very nice. She was very sweet. We had a good conversation beforehand. But um, I was trying to feel out what's her deal, you know? Does she see herself? as this leader of the party going forth, does she see herself really winning this? You know, cause she has some yeah. stiff competition here, you know, yeah, what does she really shift. think about this? I get the feeling, I think she feels like she can, but I don't know if she's convinced about it. Hmm. That's kind of the takeaway really? that I got, you know, the thing I liked about her was I'm going to praise her for I needle a little bit, because like the thing that I liked about the interview was I, I think she's at her best when she's like, just talking about being a mom, being a person that wants to fix things, right? Like sometimes you get into Elizabeth Warren space where you're a little yeah, bit scolded. I agree. And like, she wasn't like that at that all on your show, you know, and it was a very kind of personable convo. And, and I think that the Dems need that. Yeah. And so here was my thing that I wanted to kind of push back on her on is like, the Dems run everything in California, okay? I agree. And the frustrating thing is I listen to these interviews, you know, and you're interviewing her, and it's like, and I'm not expecting you to, you know, be Tim Russert or whatever, but, I, you know, you're interviewing her, and you're like, what's a problem you see on the left? Because it's like, oh, we don't right. fight enough for, I don't know, it was like reform of congressional stocks or something. And it was just like... A flattering problem is what they always say. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Well, look, people are moving into Florida and Texas. That's just a reality. You just look at the numbers. Costs are high. Housing costs are high. Right. Crime is up. Maybe not as much as it gets stereotyped, right? But, like, it's a real thing in people's lives in a lot of these cities. Nobody in that Senate race or nobody, like, even in California, like, seems to have answers for that. Like, they have talking points about why it's actually not as bad as the right saying. And they're right about that, right? A lot of times it's exaggerated. But, like, mm -hmm. do, does that frustrate you at all? Like, I mean, you're living in L.A. Yeah. What frustrates me about what you're talking about, the problem is, is no one's really taking accountability for the big problems here. 
and the fact that they've been the ones in charge, right. like you say. You know, in Los Angeles, homelessness is such a huge problem. It's devastating when you see the streets and everything. And I always see the problem put into one bucket of affordable housing. And I had a conversation about this like a few years ago about affordable housing and everything. And to me, that's such a Band-Aid answer to me. And it doesn't really address a lot of the issues, you know. But it acts like, I wish we could do something about it, you know. It's this thing that we have no control over, you know. But it's like, but why is this happening on your watch is never addressed, too, right. you know? And why are you always the ones to fix the thing that's happening on your watch? Yeah. I wish the state were more balanced. It used to be a lot more balanced. We've had Republican governors in the past. We've had divided houses and that kind of stuff. California was always the destination. I am frustrated by it. The crime thing is very frustrating to me. I've talked about that in my pod. I feel like not enough accountability has been taken in that. Now, the residents of California... I feel feel a little differently than the establishment uh, politique of California, both on the right and the left. Many people that I know on the left are concerned about crime as much as I am and that kind of stuff and some of the stuff that's going on. I think a lot of people feel like, what are we going to do? You know, you kind of throw your hands up. You know, The crime issue is so touchy because like the complaints from the Black Lives Matter and the left about policing are fair and apt, right? Like, like this doesn't happen in other countries, mm-hmm. um, the, the treatment of, you know, particularly young black men. At the same time, like, not policing these neighborhoods is not an option, you know? This wasn't the reason why I moved out of Oakland, but I had two bullet holes in my house in Oakland. Like, you know, there weren't cops yeah. on the streets. I don't, I don't love cops. I was always more of a libertarian Republican. I was never a cops, like a pro-cops guy, but, like, so how do you balance mm-hmm. that? Like, when you're in those conversations in black community in L.A., well, we don't like the way the policing is happening, but, you know, maybe no policing isn't obviously isn't the answer, right? It's, it's these communities that are getting punished. Uh, I'll talk about it in two different ways. One is there's a historical context to this, which many other, I'll say non-black people, don't quite understand. that The black community, especially the poor black community areas, have had a relationship with the police that goes back decades. And when an incident happens, for most people, it's a story. It's almost like a new story that happens. And there should be a beginning, middle, and end to that story. But to us, it's another chapter in this long book of relationship. And that's why the black community gets triggered faster when these things happen than other people who just see it as an individual event most of the time, you know, which is why the George Floyd thing connected with people because that one individual event was so heinous, people had to be engaged. It doesn't always have to be that heinous for black people to go, there goes another one, because we're in this long book of relationship. And there were many abuses by police over the years in many black communities that have happened, that have been documented, that we know about, that our parents have told us about, that we've seen ourselves. Some of it has never fully been addressed. A lot of it, I feel, isn't just a racial dynamic. It's a power dynamic, which I used to talk about. I used to say it's more blue versus black sometimes than necessarily white versus black. I think when it gets caught up in the identity of the police officer, that's not really what the question is, you know? It's always been a power dynamic in the way poor black people, especially, especially, not only, have been kind of treated as a group, you know. Okay, so that's one particular issue. It's a real issue. Yes, it's gotten better in some ways. In some ways, things haven't been addressed. A separate issue is crime, right? And what do you do about crime? Now, many people who live in these communities do not want to get rid of the police. They know the police are a very important part of addressing the crime in their areas. 
I'm not a defund the police person. I never was. In fact, two or three years ago, I've had people in my pod where I've said, why would you want to do that? And they thought I was a crazy one because it wasn't popular to be against it. But, you know, my father was in law enforcement. I have a different perspective of this, too, you know. And I always have my whole life, you know. I've never been anti-police. I've been anti-police brutality and abuse, but not anti-police. There's a distinction, you know. And you can't just look at the role of the police from a binary perspective. Because police are there for the whole community. What about Asians? Do they get a say in, do we get police or not? You know, what about what about the Latino community? Do they get to say, is it just black people who get to say, you have to defund the police and that's it? No, you know, like that part is crazy. Right, yeah. So because the issue is such a hotbed issue, huh. and because the reforms come from an activist group or an activist arm, remember, activists will always many times push to the extreme because then if you get something here, that's probably where the fix ends up. It rarely ends, starts it here, you know. But unless they're pushing here, you probably wouldn't get to here. That, to me, is a proper role for activism. Doesn't mean government has to act like activists. Doesn't mean regular citizen doesn't have to be an activist. These days, people expect regular citizens to be activists, right. you know. It's your, like your well, Instagram feed is an activism. Yeah. You got to post a square when did I sign up to be an activist? It's like most people say, why do we even have activists if everybody's going to be an activist? That was my criticism of the NBA. It's like, why does everybody have to kneel, you know, or that type of thing? What if you're not an activist? You know, isn't there a role for activism, too? You know, so whenever they take polls within these communities that are ravaged by crime in their communities, it is overwhelmingly more police, proper police engagement. They just don't want improper police engagement, yeah. but they don't want no police engagement. That's the part that activists throw out most of the time. That's cool. I want to get into your career and do a little bit of identity stuff and writing stuff, but I have one more just political. Mm -hmm. we're just, it's a political right. podcast. Let's just pretend you're a pundit, okay? I want some Larry Wilmore punditry. Kamala Harris. I know. I always say, why do people want to know what I think? Like, I've never been in politics. Well, you know, <laughs> this is why people want to know what you think about this, because I'm about to explain it. You are a performer. You know about skills. You know about performing skills. And, skills. and that's one part of politics. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, that's one part of politics. Kamala, to me, that seems like her biggest problem, right? It's the camera stuff. I mean, she seems like a nice person. Everybody I know talked to. And there's some issues. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that she has some issues on certain policies on both the left and the right. But like her biggest issue is when I watch mm -hmm. her in these interviews, it seems like I can watch the little hamster mm -hmm. rolling on the wheel in yeah. there. Like, I don't want to get in trouble, you know. How do you assess yeah. that? I mean, you got to sue as your senator for a while. Now she's a VP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now she's a VP. Like, if, if they brought you in, we're like, Larry, we need some Hollywood advice for Kamala. Sure, I'd be happy to give it. I like Kamala, and I don't like her. Okay. Both of those things are true. I think she's been unfairly called things like incompetent or this or I don't believe that at all. I think she's very capable. Competency is not an issue with her. She has what I call an Al Gore problem, okay? Okay. Here's the Al Gore problem. Al Gore was not a talented politician, okay? And he was in the shadow of one of the most talented politicians ever, of course, was Bill Clinton, right? Al Gore was uneasy on the stage, couldn't really connect with people. He seemed awkward. We still don't know who he is, you know? We don't right. have a sense of him, of the essence of who he is. Jeb had this, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, W, just by that folksy thing was enough, you know, for people to get yeah. a sense of him. Whether it's true or not is not the point. You know, people just want to be able to connect. Right. You can't connect with Kamala. There isn't a thing there that you connect to that you identify with that you say, oh, 
she's like me or she gets me or that type of thing. And the problem is, to me, there's so much going on in the head about trying to do this right and trying to do that right. It's just too much, you know. And I think when you're asking people their vote to be a leader of them, it's different than to be, let's say, a fighter for them, you know. Two different things, which is why sometimes yeah. running for Senate is different than running for president. Yeah. I thought the thing she did at a senator, she was in a great role. She was in her fighter role, which I think she's comfortable in, that feisty fighter role when they have those yeah, hearings. Prosecutor. She looked like a star in those positions, which it made yep. sense. I can see why people would want her to run for president. But when she ran for president, she shrank. You know, there was something that shrank about it because to me, everything was calculated now to try to do this and that. Even the way she attacked Biden on the stage, to me, didn't seem genuine. It seemed like yeah. it was uh, trying to, you know, keep both areas open. It was very calculated. There was something about it that wasn't genuine. Not that you can't do those things, but you have to be, people, when they're looking for somebody to lead them, they want a genuine quality, even, by the way, this is going to sound funny, even if that genuine quality is fake. Right. <laughs> this is classic Trump. You Trump know. is genuinely fake. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even if it's fake, they still want it. You know? Yeah. That doesn't matter. I think it was John Wayne, his famous quote. I'm describing to him, but it may have been other people. What's the secret to acting? Is to fake sincerity. Once you've learned to do that, you've got to, you know, yeah. is, uh, it was something like that, you know? Yeah. So to me, she is uncomfortable on the big stage for whatever reason. And it shows, and it's awkward, and it just, you know, you just feel... So how would you fix it? She comes to you, she wants a stand-up. I'm sure people give you ask you for stand-up advice. Do you have any advice for her? I don't know. Performance anxiety advice? I think she needs less advice, honestly. That's right. I think the problem is she's getting too much advice. That's what I mean by the Al Gore thing. I think he got way yeah, too much advice, rip. and then he's got a thousand voices in his head. You know, it's like... You know what? Just go out and talk to people. Don't have a script. Yeah. By worrying about making mistakes, you're making mistakes. Exactly. I was did this thing for Clinton Global Initiative, I think, in 2015. They wanted me to host this thing. This was so rare, Tim. I got a chance to hang out backstage with Bill Clinton, and we talked for about a half an hour, you know? And just to shoot the shit with the next president? I mean, that's crazy. And he was so cool. He was so nice. We're talking about everything. And uh, Pussy Riot was also going to be there. And it was oh, so God. funny. He goes, hey, look, there goes Pussy Riot. You know, and I'm like, oh, that's crazy. What a quote I have, you know. Yeah. And uh, But Hillary came by because she was going to do the thing, too. And so she shows up. And at that point, I think she hadn't announced her run yet, I think. Okay. I think for that. And getting to meet Hillary, to me, was such a treat. You know, I always admired her. You know, I wasn't one of those Hillary hater type people, you know. Um, yeah. I, I critiqued when I thought it was necessary, but it didn't come from a stance of not liking her. I really admired her. And she couldn't have been nicer, Tim. She was so genuine. I thought, wow, Hillary's going to win if she runs. You know, yeah. this person, you know, we were talking and everything. And so then we're doing the thing and Clinton is speaking. He's doing his thing and he's being Bill Clinton and he's fucking awesome as he always is, right? Yeah. right. Hillary goes up and does her thing and it's completely scripted and it's a completely different person. And I'm like, fuck, there's the problem. There it's it is problem. right there. I had a completely different experience. When she was in front of the audience, it was a completely different experience than I had behind him. And I'm not the first one to say this. Other people have said it. And to me, it's a scripting problem. It's like, throw the script away. 
Stop reading. Uh, <laughs> you know, just talk. Answer questions. It's not an accident. The best day she ever had was when she exactly. cried. Exactly. It's not an accident that her best political campaign day was the time she cried. That wasn't in the script. But then she went right back into a scripted situation. Yeah. because, And it's probably where she feels comfortable, whatever. And she yeah. was always more effective governing or doing the yeah. other thing than campaigning. So some people are just not good at that part of it. This know? reminds me your best White House Correspondence Center joke was the one that made me actually laugh out loud was, and we're here with Michelle Obama, you know, <laughs> who's the epitome of like grace and and charity and dignity or something. And we're also here with Bill Clinton, his three favorite strippers were grace and charity and dignity. <laughs> or so I don't oh, remember God. what the three names were. I don't even remember that joke. Yeah, it was about Bill Clinton's stripper joke. It was like uh, his three favorite strippers names. Was that? Are you sure that was my joke? It was you. I just watched it. I just watched it. It was a good oh, joke. Oh, my God. I don't even remember that joke. I watched it last night. I promise you it's true. Go back and find oh, wow. it. Wow. Okay. Let's get off of politics. I want to get into your career, but there's one thing that jumped out at me. Your, your show's called Black on the Air. Like You have this epic run of just being a key player in all this great black American art and living color. Bernie Mac show, which I loved. Thanks. Insecure now. Others, you can do your whole bio. Well, in the interview I was listening to, you said that at times you sometimes feel uncomfortable in black spaces because of being mixed race, etc. And I just, I had to like get at that question about identity and just kind of, I just want to put in a quarter and hear you talk about that. I don't remember that. Can you? You don't remember ever saying that? I don't remember saying I'm uncomfortable in black spaces. It wasn't about saying you're uncomfortable. It was just about saying about how in black spaces, sometimes you're like, oh, I'm not black enough for that. Or Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I was talking about when I was growing up and when I was starting out. I think that was yeah. the context for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't uncomfortable. I have always deconstructed race and identity. You know, my entire career, one of my early jokes in my standup was, you know, a lot of people ask what I'm mixed with, you know, because I'm like, yeah, and they, exactly. And they make that face. Are you mixed with something? You know, and I always said, look, if I was a beer, I'd be a Negro light. And I said, and I am a third less angry than the regular Negro. That was always the punchline. You know, it always got a big laugh. But to me, it's deconstructing. This is what you were talking about when I asked him. I think I'm just misquoting you, but it's yeah, this topic. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it must be related to that because I'm always deconstructing our I, ideas of race, identity race. And it's not just, you know, what white people think about black it's what black people think about black. And many times when I was growing up and you weren't black, properly black, if you weren't culturally black, right. you know, and sometimes you'll see that thrown at blacks if they're not culturally black in a proper yeah. way. Um and so I may have been responding to that and deconstructing those ideas because I've always been suspicious about being attached to any large group. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't matter what that large group was. So that's kind of why my brain is always contrary and why I'm going to be surprising sometimes maybe with my answers to things. Because if everybody's doing something, I'm a little suspicious of it and I'm going to think about maybe doing something else. They may be right, by the way. Yeah. but. I'm just going to be a little suspicious. So if everybody's telling me that black people have to act a certain way, I'm going to say, well, I think something's wrong with your thinking. Why do we have to act a certain way to be black? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. You know, aren't people supposed to be individuals? Aren't we supposed to be able to have free thoughts? Do we have to subscribe to the same things in order to be authentic? That doesn't make sense, which is why I've always had a soft spot for black conservatives, you know, because they've many times have been called anti-black or non-black or not black and properly black or whatever. And I always thought that's unfair. Like, you've never heard me use those terms, you know. I've always thought, can't people think for themselves? What does that have to do with their blackness? Yeah, sure. You know, like, that's a separate issue, you know. So I wonder how that manifests in the workplace. Like, that is the 
essence of these shows of in living color right it's like oh hey these black identity issues are so central to that so i just want like were you was that natural that you were drawn to that did you feel like you got stereotyped i don't know if that's the right word but you know what i mean do you feel like you got pushed down that path or you were like creatively inspired by you know that kind of work well there are two issues in living color was never a political show it was a cultural show so it's different you know nobody was taking sides between democrats or republicans or right and left it was more a show about the different types of us out there, more than black versus white type of thing. It's kind of an internal conversation, inner family. Exactly. All the different yeah. Easter eggs in that carton, you know, but they're all Easter eggs. Yeah, it's right. kind of what it was. All different yeah. So like even Men on Film, which was one of the more famous sketches, you know, two gay black men reviewing films. That wasn't political. It wasn't taking sides. It wasn't, right. you know, it was just uh, having fun with this identity thing. You know, so in Living Color always came from a space of fun, laughs, showing something that wasn't always shown, but it wasn't a taking sides thing, you know, which to me is more of a modern thing of taking sides. So yeah. that's the environment that I was in was it was more uh, deconstructing or exposing that type of thing. I did a show called The uh, PJs, you know, it was an animated show with Eddie Murphy and it was in the projects and all of our jokes were at ourselves, most of them, you know, <laughs> and, you know, like one was a. Uh, the HUD office, Housing Urban Development. And I came up with this joke. And, and I remember the network was like, kind of, hmm, what does that mean? It said, HUD, keeping you in the project since 1965 was the joke. You know? <laughs> and I thought, it is a great double entendre. You know, it's like, yeah. like yeah. is that what we really want to do? Stay uh, in the projects? So, you know, we're yeah. keeping you in the project. And they were like, well, what do you mean by that? I'm like, who cares what I mean? It's just a joke. You know, what do you care what I mean? Why should that be of interest to you? I remember answering that question that way. You know, what do you care what I mean by it was what my answer was. You know? How did those kind of material change between the PJs and In Loving Colors like now, Insecure? And Insecure is a cultural show that isn't really about race, but these people's lives that we don't always get to see. It's not the racial thing isn't really a part of its makeup in terms of a deconstruction. It's more about the identity of a person that doesn't quite know where they're going or who they are. Yeah. It's more universal in that sense. And I love that you say that because like, you're in yeah. there in the creation and doing that and writing it. And so, you know, my perspective is a total sure. just outsider, like consumer. And it's like, for me, and maybe this is just me seeking out sure. the wrong art, you see so many layers of Issa and just like this character, mm. like the depth of this you sure. know, character and like her relationships. And there is yeah. the cultural element, but the black community and her family. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I've gotten to see characters like that. Exactly. Like a lot of like black women characters exactly. like that. Where I, so maybe it's not intentionally about race, but it kind of is because well, I'm learning new things I've never seen before. I appreciate you saying that. Yes, it's intentional that we're showing this culture because we haven't seen it, but I'm saying the subject matter isn't about that. Right. So that's, that's the distinction right. that I'm making. The clothes that we put on are about that. Like the Bernie Mac show, it was never about a black comedian, you know, and talking about race. Like I always say, you know, what the Bernie Mac show was about was children are terrorists. I don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> like that's what it was about, you know, and it's in the DNA I've ever seen. And that's what's, that's what's related about it. Now for me, it's Larry Wilmore. I'm saying, I also wanted to show this successful black man who was in a good marriage. It was two parent household yeah. who were taking care of these kids. Like that stuff was important to me, but the show's never about that. I just put that in there. That's you cool. know, some of these things I wanted to show a positive view of this. That he was rich and he was not apologetic about it. 
like, in fact, Bernie boasted about how much he had. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I thought that was great too. There was oh, no yeah. apology for success, which sometimes you see people do, you know, there's a little bit of a Trumpian element to the Bernie character, just in that degree, right? Well, just like a fuck you. Yes. In the sense, in those days, Trump was popular with the hip hop crowd actually, because there right. was kind of a braggadocio. Yeah. So right. there's a little bit of that type of thing in Bernie, which is part of kind of that culture of, of what that is but not in the sense of tearing down people or that part of what that is. It's more of that era. Yeah, for sure. I'm always curious about the zero to one of writing something. So you did that for Bernie, like you created it, like there was a blank piece of paper and you created and wrote something. I pitched it to him. Yeah, talk to me about that process for either Bernie or just in general. I, like for me, just doing more, like, you know, I was always an operative, right? So like the writing thing is something I just started to do. And like the hardest part is like to go sure. from zero to one. Right. Like people have come to me and said, hey, you should write a political show. Yeah, I bet I might be good at that. If somebody gave me the first page 18, I could do 18 to 19. Right. But how do you do page one? Dramatic writing, of course, is a process. I studied playwriting in college, you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, the creative process, it, it's kind of both this mystery and there's a technical part of it, too. You know, like I'm amazed by how people write songs you know it's like where does that come from you know how right. do you do that uh, you know i think dustin hoffman was with paul mccartney you know was asking a question and that's when paul wrote picasso's last words or something like he said well let's just do something you know i think he i don't know if this is true but looked in the paper picasso just died and grand old painter died last night his paintings on the wall and it's like where did this come from you know it's like <laughs> he's creating something with the tools that he knows how to create so there's that, like I have tools of how to create something, how to put things together, and then how to develop them based on my skills as a writer. Now, how do you do that is a separate thing, and where do you draw inspiration from is separate too. And that, to me, I have to be an antenna for things. So, and I have to investigate what feels like something that might make for good storytelling. So that's the brain that I'm using for that. Yeah. In terms of the Bernie Mac show, I was, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this part of it, but uh, I'll do it. when I've talked about this, because I've lectured to writers and that kind of stuff and talked about these things, but my creative process, many times when you're creating something is different than when you're just executing something that already exists, right? Because the creative process, everything is new. So where do you draw from? So I say, I always draw from three different things, consciously or subconsciously. One is like, is there a story that happened to me that I want to dramatize? Maybe something happened in my childhood. Maybe I went through something in school. Maybe there's a work thing. I thought, you know what? This is a good story. I need to write this, you know, and put this on television. I think it'll make a good show. Many people do that. Second way is, is there something I'm observing in the culture that I find interesting? Not something that happened to me. Am I observing something that I think would make a good story? What is something that I think, oh, that thing looks interesting. I should write about that. And now I'm being educated about something and I'm dramatizing this thing that I'm observing. The last thing is, and I've always, this is a third rail that I've always done. Mm -hmm. What is happening in the state of television itself that maybe I'm making a comment on or doing something differently? Like, in other words, in the technical aspect of storytelling, am I deconstructing or doing something different? Because I like form to form is also a ways to start a story. Um, if you look at the office, the way that yeah. Ricky Gervais, he, he changed the form of something and was able to tell a different story, but it was taking a different form and using that as a way to tell a story, as opposed to if that was in the traditional through camera setup of the office, it wouldn't have quite worked because we're observing behavior. Right. So you had to 
technically do something different. You see what I'm saying? Was that where Insecure fit as a third thing, a commentary on TV, or was that? Insecure, not necessarily. By the way, there's always a combination of these in different ways. Yeah, sure. But Insecure was more like we wanted to have, like, why is there not a black girls, you know? <laughs> like, right. Like that type of thing. There was already a form that exists, but it just hadn't existed for us. That's kind of what it was. Yeah. So I have this, I adopted daughter is black, and it's just like insecure, and I read Americana at the same time, and I'm like, I, I'm never going to know your inside of your brain, but now I'm like, I at least have like a tiny window, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of see like what is going through. It's sure. just so separate from my like suburban experience. But so I guess yeah. so their story you're saying was more yeah. about the culture, but the, the fact that it was just different, a, a black girl's. Well, the story was more about who is this girl? Yeah. Like Insecure started with, uh, it was inspired by Issa's web series, Awkward Black Girl. Okay. Now, once again, in the culture of television, we don't get to see this character, awkward black right. girl. Usually it's sassy black woman. Right. You know, she usually will put you in your place. Right. You know, she's got a lot of confidence. Yeah. You know, she knows more than you know. That's been kind of the archetype of black women in the television space. Issa's character was different. She was withdrawn. She was insecure, as we say. Right. You know, she doubted herself. Her situations were awkward. She didn't have the put down. She would think of the put down later when she was talking to her mirror, and then she would know what to say. But in the situation, she was socially awkward. Now, all of us can relate to that, but we've never been able to dramatize that. So the technical part of it is, yeah, we haven't seen this girl on television. That's the technical part. So we're like, yeah. And then the content of it is, okay, let's draw that out. What are the aspects of her life and who she is? And Issa and I spent a month just talking about these things. And like it was almost me interviewing her every day, you know, talking about her life, extracting what should be in the show, what shouldn't be in the show, you know, this type of thing. And that's how we kind of created that show out of these observations about the relationship between a person like that and the world. That's so cool. And Bernie, I'm sorry, just uh, we got down this path. I was like, Bernie, part of what was underneath that was the heartache of raising kids, you know. And I was drawing from my own life the first part of it. My parents divorced when I was young, and there were six of us kids. And I was relating to the toll that it took on my mom and how hard it was when she was raising us in that. And I thought, there's stuff in there for a show. And at the time, I had small children, and it was taking a certain toll on my wife in different ways. And I was observing this. We had a different relationship to it. And I thought, ooh, you know, there's a show in here. And then... I was observing something in the culture. I was seeing how, at that time, kids were doing this, emancipating themselves from parents and that type of thing. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I thought, this is something I want to dramatize, this relationship that kids think that they should have with parents. And I thought that was funny, you know. And so it was something I was observing. And then in the state of television, most shows were multi-camera at that time. And I was looking at some reality shows, what was going on, and I wanted to do something technically different that could allow us to observe the action rather than it being kind of forced at us, you know? So it almost like my first idea for the show was to have cameras rigged up in a house and just make it feel like we were observing these people living real world style. Yeah. That was the first way that I thought it. And then I came up with a more stylistic way to do it, but it always involved Bernie kind of talking to us directly, talking to the camera. And that came from two things. It came from, there was a show called 1900 house where, People had to live like it was 1900 there in England, you know, and it was so fascinating just I to see, this one. yeah, how behavior, 
it was so hard on them and everything. It was the hardest on the mom, of course, because she had the, <laughs> the hardest job. But they also had churning butter. Oh, the dad had it great. He got <laughs> yeah. to leave in the morning and come back later. You know, he had it amazing. And uh, but they had a confessional camera that was like in a closet somewhere, and they could go confess mm. things that they had done. And so they go in there. Yeah. I had a Snickers ball today. <laughs> I knew. I wasn't supposed to have it, but I couldn't take this anymore. You know, and I thought, that's a fascinating tool of storytelling, this confessional camera. It worked so well for Bernie, too, because Bernie's, like, hiding from his kids in the closet. If Bernie could confess to America what he was feeling, I thought that would be an interesting way to help tell a story. And then the second part that I drew that from was in Bernie's stand-up act, he talked to the crowd directly as well as telling jokes. So in the middle of Zach, and he would say, Charlotte, you know what I'm talking about. Charlotte, you know Bernie Mac don't do that. You know Bernie Mac feels that way. Charlotte, you know. And I thought, this is so great. Bernie treats the audience like they're his best friend, like they're one person, not a whole crowd, you know. And I thought it'd be interesting if he did that to America. America, when Bernie Mac say he wants to kill those kids, you know he don't mean that. America, you know what I'm talking about. And it's funny that when I wrote the pilot, it was during the 2000 recount stuff. Okay. When I was writing the actual physical writing of it, right? When we couldn't have been more divided at that time, right? Yeah. But when it aired... Wasn't little do we know. I know, exactly. But when it aired, like a year later, it was right after 9-11. And we couldn't have felt more united compared to... Right. When, so when he said America, it really resonated with people in a way that I, I had never even imagined, you know? That's cool to think about. That was a cool show. Okay, one more thing on the show, but then we'll do a quick rapid fire and get you out of here. I have to ask because it's just like it's so intertwined in the political conversation, sure. right? Which is this notion that somebody in your job can't say what they really think now. They're so sure. worried about being canceled, oh, blah, blah, blah. Talk about the real impact, how that's changed. Are there things you're concerned about, not concerned about? That's a great question. And I don't think people are wrong to think that. I think it exists in culture at large now. It's not just a showbiz thing. I think because of social media and this kind of gotcha thing that people have the power of a microphone that is set on 11 <laughs> unnecessarily <laughs> where before people would have to write a letter to somebody, you know, and take the time. To, yeah. Right. And then who cares? You know, now yeah. people can immediately express a larger than life dissatisfaction with a smaller than life situation. So yeah. reactions are way out of proportions to deeds in my mind, where it used to be the other way around. Deeds were out of proportion to reactions. You know, it seemed like you would have to get people together to protest things and governments or whatever. Right. Now you can have a very large platform to to protest something somebody said. Yeah, right. Which is ridiculous. And people can lose their jobs because of it. So I think in the culture there's a lot of fear about Am I treading improperly here and will something bad happen to me? You know, will people shun me or yeah, whatever? Sure. Will I not be able to get another writing job? Will I not get another acting job, right? I mean, in showbiz, I'm sure maybe people think that way, but maybe not. I personally don't feel that way myself to a large extent. There are some issues that I just won't go into because I know what's the point, Larry, especially <laughs> especially on social media. Yeah. If I'm going to talk about something, I'll use a proper platform where I can really talk about it like on my podcast yeah. or that but you'll rarely see me tweeting about divisive issues because you twitter is the worst place yeah. to get an idea across you know and social media in general is you know i'd rather do it in an interview on television or like i said on a podcast or that type of thing if i have something that i think might touch those type of buttons i want to make sure i'm properly represented in what i'm saying but you don't feel like comedy shows television shows stand up is stifled people are creatively stifled or do you think maybe they are um i don't know i mean 
It depends what people want to dramatize, you know. People may not want to dramatize the things that you think yeah. they're not supposed to dramatize, you know. <laughs> they have to be interested in dramatizing it first and for them yeah. to feel stifled, I guess, you know. I yeah. think what different generations feel is important to talk about changes as well as people's wanting to hear it. I think both of those things can be true. Okay, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Quick rapid fire. I've got two topics. The first one we get everybody on. Uh, we're never Trumpers here, so I had to do a lot of reflecting in our life, uh, myself in particular. And so I like to ask everybody something that they've changed their mind on as a grown-up. Yeah. I like to cultivate a culture where it's okay to change your mind on shit. You don't have to be stubborn, you know? So is there anything you've changed your mind on as a grown-up? It could be about anything. It doesn't have to be politics. Uh, I think I've changed my mind. It's going to sound weird. <laughs> On everybody's relationship is different, <laughs> you know, like whatever you agree to in your relationship is fine, you know, <laughs> let's put it like that. There don't necessarily have to be rules for all relationships. Got Romantic relationships? Well, yes, romantic relationships I'm talking about, you know, just mainly just being naive, honestly, as opposed to I never had a strong opinion about this, but it was more out of naivete. Yeah. Relationships should work like this, and that's how things should be, right? <laughs> you know? But no, after I was married for 20 years, I went through a divorce. I, yeah. I've seen friends go through this and that. You know, we've seen culturally the world has changed, you know, that type of thing. I say whatever two people agree to in a relationship, fine. That's cool with you. Absolutely, Tim. Who am I to say that their rules have to adhere to someone else's rules. You know, I think I've changed more about that than anything else. Right, I want to go down a Wilmore rabbit hole. So I'm, I've got three bests and a worst for you. If there are any you don't know, that's fine. But a best in living color skit yeah. to go down a YouTube hole, best daily show or Wilmore show bit, best stand up set or joke that I haven't seen. Could be you or someone else. Any of those jump out. I want to get on YouTube on the plane home and just do a dive. Okay. My favorite in living color. I'll say the one that I wrote. There you go. Of course. Because uh, I'll say my favorite was when Jamie Foxx, who I hope he's getting better. Um, he had some stuff happen recently. Uh. Jamie Foxx was so talented. He was new on the show, and he had this character we called Ugly Woman. That was the name of her, and it was Wanda. <laughs> I remember. And I came up with a sketch where he would be getting a massage from Tommy Davidson, and Tommy couldn't see his face because he's in the massage thing like this. And <laughs> without seeing her face, you know, he's like, oh, man, you know. He's coming onto her and he's doing all these things. And of course, the audience knows it's yeah. Jamie's character and all that stuff. And so when Jamie first shows his face and Tommy Davidson, he's got like this. Oh, no, it was Tommy who couldn't see him. That's what it was. Tommy couldn't see him. Tommy was face down and, and Jamie was giving him a massage. That's what oh, it was. God, I wanted yeah. to get this proper. And so Tommy was like this and couldn't see him. And just this this nice woman is yeah. giving him a massage and all that stuff. And the, and Hands flirting all and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. But the audience can see that it, you know, it's Jamie's character. And they're laughing, laughing, laughing. And then as soon as Tommy sees her and he's ready to do something, he jumps off of that table. He had these little Speedo, like, underwear on. And skinny Tommy Davidson, like, is running around. Jamie kind of pulls him down. We see his little butt, I think, at one point. And I have never heard an audience laugh so hard as him. They were stomping their feet. I mean, that's one of the fun things about a live audience. I mean, I've never heard a reaction like that. I was so happy that I wrote it, too, you know. And that was my favorite memory of In Living Color was doing that sketch and seeing uh, Jamie Foxx chase Tommy Davidson around that set. It was so, so much fun. Okay. You have a Daily Show one or a stand-up one for me? Or should we just do In Living Color? In Living Color's good. Daily Show. 
I don't know. We did a lot of fun ones. I mean, a completely inappropriate one probably today would be look up the Mark Twain one. We we deconstructed okay. his use of the N word, and I was very proud of that. It's going to offend a lot of people even today. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll look up. Those two sound good. I guarantee it to be offensive even now, but it's one of my favorites. Final one is I was going to ask the worst podcast guest that you have, but was there anybody that was worse than me? I'm looking for you know. I just uh, no, you were good, Tim. Worst. I had a really bad one. Okay, and I didn't even air it. That's how bad it was. He wouldn't okay. answer any questions. He was an actor who's just being actory. We won't name the person. I won't even name him because I was so frustrated. Oh, God. It was like he wouldn't give me anything, you know. And it was early on when I was still, you know, we were, we were still finding your your footing and everything. And I said, we can't air this shit. This is horrible. <laughs> this is terrible. And he just didn't care. He could care less about being there because we were doing it in person then. This wasn't Zoom. Yeah. And, oh, Tim, it was just the worst. It was so bad. Well, I hope to never have one of those. We're just getting this thing started. I'm so grateful that you did it. You know, hopefully we can hang out again oh, soon, roll on through New Orleans sometime. Yeah. Would love it. Everyone should check out your podcast, of course. And just really quick from Sebastian, Grace, Class, and Poise were the stripper names. So that was it. Those are the Bill Clinton strippers. <laughs> Grace, Class, and Poise. It was, I was la- God, it's funny how there's jokes that I can't even remember. I was laughing in my hotel last night. There were jokes that I was going to do and I cut at the last minute, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Some were kind of hardcore, but yeah. You know, what are you going to do, Tim? Thank you for your grace, class, and poise. We'll be, t- we'll be talking. And uh, everybody else, we'll see you on Wednesday for the Normal Next Level podcast with Sarah and JVL. We'll catch everybody later. Peace. <laughs>